0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 Terms and conditions apply.
1: The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 3rd, 2014, the Jump the Fence edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor-at-large of Slate. I'm in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, why is President Obama being protected by mall cops? We'll try to figure that out. Then, is Mitt Romney actually a credible candidate for president in 2016, or is this just some elaborate prank pulled by a few people in the chattering classes? And then the weird Kansas Senate race in which a guy who will not say what he believes could tip the Senate toward the Democrats since they're going to lose everything else everywhere else. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and a great Slate Plus segment today. Wow, it's a good Slate Plus segment. I just listened to it. Uh, I'm about to launch this this uh, podcast where I interview people about their jobs. And today we're going we're gonna to tease it with an interview with Stephen Colbert, bits of my interview with Stephen Colbert, in which he talks about how he gets himself into character as Stephen Colbert. It's a fantastic segment. It's a really really interesting. He's such a good talker. And you can listen to that if you're a Slate Plus member, which you can become if you go to slate.com slash gabfest plus, or if you email me directly, plots at com. I will hook you up with the best discount. Emily Bazelon is with us in New York, and you are now a New York Times reporter. We can officially say that, right? New York Times magazine right. reporter?
2: Exactly. Staff what, writer. What the did, they, what the
1: did they do to you to in- initialize you?
2: I had a really charming meeting with the newspaper guild people on my first day on Monday, which I didn't actually quite understand that I am now a member of the guild, kind of whether I like it or not, but I'm happy to be in the guild. And what I'm trying to remember is whether I was in the guild 20 years ago when I first was a newspaper reporter. I can't remember whether I joined. Now, or just,
1: th- now you get like incredible retirement benefits because they would count oh, you right. as heavy. I, they
2: I,
3: sign <laughs> you up or are you just a member of the guild? There's always that distinction between those who are free riders.
2: They gave me a card to sign up in which... It was the date still had the 19 in it. Like, <laughs>
3: so, <yeah. laughs> isn't
1: that awesome? <laughs> that is so I think that is a metaphor. That, that is, is the best so metaphor for awesome. unions in this country <laughs> that I've ever heard. Wow, That's fantastic. (laughs) But
2: I sent it back nonetheless.
1: I hope you're paying. You're not going to be a free rider, are you? Yeah,
2: no, of course. I have to pay whether I want to officially join or not. I am joining. I am paying. I'm doing all of that. Wait, you
3: have to pay whether you're officially joining or not? Yeah, we talked about this in our union
2: segment about the Supreme Court. You have to pay because you are getting the benefits of collective bargaining if you're a worker.
3: Yeah, okay.
1: Uh, Well, congratulations on your new job. So look for great Bazelon stories in the New York Times magazine. coming soon. And John Dickerson... Not that you haven't been able to find them there before. That's true. Now there'll be even more of them and even better, possibly. John Dickerson is here in Washington. He is Slate's Chief Political Correspondent, Political Director of CBS News. Hello, John. Hi, David. We've got so many great live shows coming up. No matter where you live in this country, there's a great live show coming up for you. So... This weekend, on Sunday, we'll be doing our live show in San Francisco, the Super Fest West. That is now chow, s- chow,
3: chow, chow, chow. That is
1: sold out. Uh, and then on November 12th in Chicago, we're going to do a live show. You can get tickets for that at Slate.com slash ChaiGabFest. It's at the Park West. Ask Amy. Amy Dickinson is going to be our special guest. It is our conundrum show. It is the funnest show of the year. It's really fun live. You'll get to ask awesome questions. John Dickerson will will morally struggle. He will wrestle with himself. He will get sweaty wrestling with himself morally. That's going to be a great show. Slate.com slash Gabfest. And then on November 17th, just a few days later, in New York, we have our second Superfest. John? Superfest East in New York at the Williamsburg Hall of Music or the Music Hall of Williamsburg or the Williamsburg Hall of Music, something like that. Tickets for that are at slate.com slash superfesteast. Those tickets go on sale at noon on Friday. And for all and that's a show we're going to do with the Culture Fest, with Mike Pesca, and with the Hang Up and Listen guys. It's going to be amazing. For all these tickets, you if you're a Slate Plus member, you get thirty percent off. So please go slate.com slash Chigabfest or Slate.com slash SuperfestEast. The Secret Service scandal, a comic opera of incompetence climaxed on Wednesday with the resignation of Julia Pearson as Director Pearson, who gave one of the least impressive congressional testimonies in history earlier in the week, fell on her sword because of revelations about a series of Secret Service screw-ups from lying about the White House fence jumper, in addition to just the mere incompetence of handling the White House fence jumper, to a uh, news of a gun-toting weirdo who rode an elevator with President Obama recently to revelations that the Secret Service didn't notice when someone shot up the White House a few years ago. Whoops, we didn't realize those were gunshots. At least there don't seem to be any more Colombian hookers. So, Emily, there's so much to get in with this.
2: How can you even of uh, uh, resist starting with yourself since this is your favorite topic and you have been looking for ammunition okay. to go after the secret service with Well, he's been he's been
1: looking for ammunition while the secret service hasn't been. Um, yeah, they'll probably now that you've said that they'll <laughs> yeah. probably come arrest you. That's the kind of David, you we better have. not
2: tell me so, that you're going to suddenly start defending them. Can I just no. say one Here, thing? Can I just say one thing about this? So the roar. fence
3: jumper at the White House in every article it says who had 800 rounds of ammunition in his car. It was in his car. It was in his car. <laughs> like, it's his car. He was caught with, like, a pocket knife. Yes. This like, gets it, me, it's so
1: This it's... gets me so mad. Yeah. I want to get it into this very thing, which is that people talk about this as though, really, the president's security has been compromised every second. None of these incidents, except possibly the guy with the concealed weapon. The elevator the possibly, guy. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> Is the president's security even remotely compromised? And people are treating this as though there's a nuclear missile headed toward the White House and the president you know, has one minute to get away. You a, are defending like the, the Secret
2: Service. No, Listen to you. absolutely
1: not. No, absolutely not. I will not defend the Secret it, Service.
3: I think the ground he's trying to find is the ground I've been trying to find over the last couple of days, which is... The
2: reasonable person ground. No, well, it's... Oh, no. I'm not there. It's I will the, not
3: be on that ground. It's the yes, it's incompetent, but like, let's have a sense of perspective here. Right. I mean... You know, yeah. OK, you had the fence jumper, but he had a little knife. The president was out of town. He didn't get that far in the building. And also, by the way, if they would lit him up while he was going across the lawn, we'd all be going on and on about right. how an Iraqi war vet had been, you know, right. shot totally. full of yeah. holes. Yeah. Yeah. In the and White also House. probably so, where they would
1: have hit, definitely. you know, other people, the protesters yeah, exactly, behind them on, right. on Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's he,
3: not like it's a right. it's like a quiet Glen. It's a place full of people where you don't just go firing off rounds willy nilly. I think willy-nilly is the new head of the (laughs) (laughs) – No, willy-nilly.
1: Or maybe that was the one they brought in after (laughs) the Colombian hookers. So the range of criticisms of the Secret Service for this stuff seems to be, wow, they're incompetent because they've been so underfunded. So we need to give them a ton more money money, and they'll become better. To – Wow, they're incompetent because they're underfunded, so we should give them a lot, even more than a ton more money. There doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any, any range beyond, like, let's give them a ton more money so they can paramilitarize Washington even more than they have.
3: Right. I mean, also, just in terms of seeking, like, perspective and balance and judgment here— As we talked about, the guy on the elevator does seem to be the problem, not just because it's probably not great to have a thrice convicted assaulter carrying a weapon that you don't know about in a closely confined space with the president. I mean, a human being is not allowed to get near the president, let alone some guy who's like a local security guard who's concealing a weapon. I mean, that does seem to be a huge breach. And one other part of this is that that when that breach happened, they didn't tell the president it had happened. And yet the director of the the Secret Service claimed that she always told the president about when there had been lapses like that. You can agree that that was crappy management on her part and that there is a culture of ass covering in the Secret Service that seems to me to be separate and apart from these three instances and may, in fact, not even be connected to them.
1: Emily, Secret Service gets $1.8 billion a year in government funding. Are they underfunded?
2: I was amazed there are 6,600 of them. I mean, we're supposed to be worried that there used to be 6,900. But when I read that number, I thought maybe it had an extra zero on the end because it just seemed like a lot of people. I mean, obviously, they have an important job and we have to respect that. But when you read that the White House didn't have an automatic lock on the front door, it's hard to see how a lot more money is the problem as opposed to just... A kind of smarter way of doing this job that makes use of basic technology, which they also didn't have, like, sensors for the front lawn. I mean, there seemed like a lot they of They have so much things. technology.
1: Those guys have way, way too much technology. I will tell you the problem with the Secret Service in a nutshell. Good. Tell us. Okay. The problem with the Secret Service is not that they're incompetent, although they may well be incompetent, and they seem to have been grotesquely incompetent in at least a couple of these cases. The problem with the Secret Service is that they are unaccountable to anybody because they – exist in this nether world where and especially now they've been put in under the Department of Homeland Security where it is not possible to question what they do. That they but I
2: thought that made them more questionable and that actually they had more autonomy in Treasury and that's right. an argument for moving them back to Treasury.
1: No, no. So I, I think that, that's a separate point. I guess at my point about Homeland Security, the thing that's happened with Homeland Security is that you're not allowed to question those expenses. There's no, nothing is ever put up against a rational cost-benefit calculation. No line item you get to do budget. whatever you want yeah. and sort of say like, oh, we, we really need this. We really, we really need, you know, to train spiders to detect bombs. We need robot spiders everywhere and we need $16 billion for our robot spider program. It will defend the homeland. You're like, okay, we guess we need robot spiders. I feel that the Secret Service is one big robot spider is that you, it is a black box. Mm-hmm. We have no idea. Do they have enough people to protect the president? Probably. Are they spending the money well? We don't know. And all, they can just go and just bullshit their way through it because no one is going to be the person who stands up and says, you know what, maybe we shouldn't protect the president. Maybe the the fact that the president Obama's had three times as many threats against him just shouldn't make us super anxious. We should just say, we're okay, we're going to do a pretty good job, and that's sufficient. Because at any any stage, anything that anyone wants to add – you cannot be the person that says, oh, don't add it. Don't put the machine gun nest on the roof. Don't. But David, don't Congress train the is dogs. seriously
2: on it this time. I mean, they thrashed the former, the, CIA, the now, Secret Service, yes, Service director who just stepped down. They thrashed Julia Pearson in these hearings. Now they have a new interim director. Isn't this the moment where there would be some congressional oversight? But
1: the way the oversight will be is like, you should just do more. The oversight is going to be – it's a maximalist oversight. It's only mm -hmm. do more. There's no no sort of like let's really think about this and apply some sort of rationality to it in the way that we have tried to apply rationality to all other kinds of programs. Well, we've tried
3: and failed in many instances, but the fact that they are autonomous and can't be – and are held unaccountable – It has not been improved by the accountability we're seeing right now, which is, as you said, the reaction is you shoot more. and It's the department
1: of hysteria. And now it's going to be even worse, right? Because
3: anything in the future when they ask for money, they'll just say, well, you know, look at what happened when we didn't have the the money before. I want to ask you to this question, though, which is that some people have tried to make the claim that as a political matter, this will make people feel ever more the fact that Washington screwed up, can't get anything right, that government is a mess. What do you think about that, A – do you think people will feel that way? And B, do you feel like it will be a lasting burr under the saddle for them?
1: I think A is absolutely true, but it's really a short technical advantage for the Republicans who are able to do It's a wonderful, this is a wonderful episode for Republicans because it reinforces their basic theme, which is that Washington is kind of incompetent, the government's incompetent, Obama's a bad manager, at the same time it allows them to appear to be really, you know, deeply concerned, as probably they are, with the, with the patriotic and concerned with the safety of the president. It's a lovely position to be in. And I bet, I haven't looked at the polling data, but John, I'm sure, is about to whip it out. All evidence shows that this is probably accruing to the benefit of, of Republicans as far as 14 goes.
3: Well, I don't know. I don't think anybody's I done bet it's polling irrelevant. yet. I think it's irrelevant. Since she resigned and they've got a new head of the Secret Service, unless the Post comes up with another amazing story... I think it's come and gone and totally will be forgotten, as opposed to, say, the VA scandal
1: or the IRS. The VA scandal, totally forgotten.
3: Well, there are a lot of veterans to whom it's still important, because I was having this discussion with somebody yesterday about the political implications. And, I mean, this isn't, as opposed to the VA scandal, where there are veterans who do vote in important battleground states and people who feel strongly about veterans, whether they have relation to them or have served themselves. In this case, people don't want the president to be shot, but this isn't affecting them in their daily lives. So I think it has actually no impact even on the question of Washington incompetence, which is basically people are at a very low level of confidence in Washington's ability to get anything right. This will affirm and confirm what they previously believed. I don't think it adds new members to the ranks of those who think Washington's incompetent. And I think it goes away. And it's already away by the time people are listening
1: to this. I just want to make my point, which I make every time I hear the word Secret Service as a native Washingtonian, someone who has spent most of my life here, is that the way that we have become an armed garrison in this city, and the Secret Service is not entirely responsible for it. There's a lot that's post 9-11, which is all kinds of securitization and garrisoning. But our president travels like the head of a totalitarian regime travels. He travels at that level of threat level the way public safety officials treat the public when there's any person of importance around as grotesque, the level of bullying, of intimidation, of screaming at, of general treating you as not as a citizen who has a right to be on a public place and to see your public officials, but as someone who is who is an imminent threat is disgusting. And I hate living. It's one of the things I really hate about what's happened in Washington. And the Secret Service is the most offensive in this way. It's, but in no way unique, but they are the most offensive. And the but way they we're... treat people is great. But
2: David, don't we have to worry about the fact that there have been three times as many death threats towards Obama as previous presidents? I mean, I do have this fear that we've no. given comfort no. to the... No, no,
1: no. I don't think so. I don't think there's any... Of course, when I say this, then the Secret Service people will come back and say, what I'm about to say, they'll say, well, you just... We can't tell you about this. But I sincerely doubt there's been any threat to the president, which was an actual threat where... Like, really, anyone could have gotten away. This guy jumping the fence, there is no chance. The president is more likely to catch Ebola than for this guy to have killed the president. Especially since
3: he left in a helicopter before the guy
1: arrived. I mean, it's just – it's crazy to say – that because there are a lot of there are a lot of racists and people who hate Obama out there and who are saying nasty things about him, that really his he is in much more danger in such much more danger that every citizen on the street who is who is walking needs to be you know threatened by a Secret Service officer when they when they happen to walk out in the street when they have shut the entire Washington downtown so Joe Biden can can drive his stupid 25 car motorcade through downtown at well, uh, rush hour it's it's nuts it's uh, awful
3: I think well the, the the motorcades are ridiculous I think that, they, that yeah, actually, that's the Secret Service and one of the things they're being criticized for here, I think the Secret Service does try to keep that balance, particularly in protecting the First Lady and the president's kids, try to not have a huge footprint. I think part of what they're doing, though, also is that they're anticipating the kind of outrage we're seeing right now, which is like if they don't protect him for all the reasons you would want to protect him from a security standpoint, you will get this kind of overly done outrage which affects like your ability to operate even in a reasonable way you know so the secret service may be deciding to cover him to whatever level but the political system is encouraging them in every possible
1: way to overdo it right yeah all right well i i don't know why why the secret service makes me so mad they really do that doesn't mean i want to visit from you secret service just saying the Gafest this week is sponsored by stamps.com Do not let going to the post office cut down on your free time. You should use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can print postage right from your desk. You will not have to go to the post office to find parking and wait your turn. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. You can print everything from stamps to shipping labels whenever you need it, and you can just hand it to your postal carrier. Stamps.com is convenient and easy to use, and you will never waste time going to the post office again. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST for a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Mitt Romney hasn't completely ruled out a presidential run in 2016, maybe, in this period of Republican presidential soul searching in, in this kind of uh, no man's land, this, this uh, what's it called, where you wait in... Twilight period. Twilight. But no, in what's it called in Catholic doctrine, the place where you... Purgatory. W- in the purgatory. purgatory before the presidential campaign starts. Romney's name is being brooded about by a few people as a potential candidate for 2016. The reason for this seems to be that there's a field where the obvious establishment candidates, namely Chris Christie and Jeb Bush, have distinct weaknesses. Chris Christie, Bridgegate, and his general temperamentalness. Jeb Bush, his brittleness, his reluctance to run, and positions that appear to be anathema to many in his party. And the conservative firebrand candidates, who are many and enthusiastic, seem risky to many people. So Romney brings a certain gravity. But John Dickerson... You've thought about this a lot, why are people looking at him now, and is this a is this a serious look, or is this just a, is this just like a tinder flirtation?
3: Well, I think the reason people are looking at him now there are several different reasons. One is some of the things that Romney said during the campaign, particularly about the strategic threat of Russia, about uh, what was happening in Syria, have turned out to be true, and he was dismissed sort of. Thoroughly by both the president and Joe Biden. And so there's a lot of just sort of enjoyment from Republicans saying like, you know, stuffing that back in the president's face. So that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is there's also a lot of people who supported Romney who were embarrassed after he lost and thought, oh, what an embarrassing campaign, particularly people who raised money for him and who felt like with around their friends like, oh, yeah, sorry, I like, got you to write that check. And it was such an embarrassing campaign now that he's had a rebirth and people in a CNN poll by a pretty good margin by. Almost double digits. People say they they would vote for Romney over Obama now. Polls in among Republicans in Iowa and other places pick Romney first. Now those people who supported him, who felt embarrassed about supporting him, can now again kind of be like, "Hey, Romney," so that it recess, it, it revives their own reputation within their own circles. That has nothing with, to do with Romney running again. But to the extent that he's seen as a person who might be viable to run again, it sort of elevates him and all who are associated with him. And, and then I think there's a feeling that like he would be a better president, too, when there's mismanagement at everything from the VA to the Secret Service to just the idea that basically they can't do anything right in the executive branch. And here's a guy who was an executive who was a turnaround guy. How you may have fared as a president, which is sort of the imagined perfection of a Romney presidency versus the reality of the Obama presidency, first of all, that itself is kind of obviously a false reasoning. But secondly, even if you imagine him to be a great president, you still have to deal with the fact that he wasn't a great candidate. And if the idea is that the current field of candidates is weak, with which I have some disagreement— He would be a weak candidate, too. So it's not like he is the platonic ideal of a candidate. He would be just
1: as damaged as all those other people you mentioned. Is it conceivable that he will run or this is pure fiction?
3: I don't I think it's well, anything's anything's conceivable. I think he is mindful of it because when he was a candidate, there were people always looking for other candidates. So he knows the way this works, which is that people look at the current crop of candidates and say, oh, they're, you know, not a perfect thing. So I'll try and promote the candidacy of a person who's not running because that seems like they might be a perfect candidate. It's crea- it's There's this just sort of crazy-making thinking that happens in both parties. But on the other hand, when people are calling you on the phone and telling you you should run, it's really powerful. And also, as uh, our friend Mark Leibovitch wrote this week, Romney feels, and other losing candidates have talked about this and feel this way, This interesting, and we should put a name to it. And I'm surprised Mark didn't. It's not phantom presidency syndrome, but there is a kind of glumness and mild depression depression that kicks in when you think of like, look at where the country's gone. I could have done something to fix that, and because I lost my campaign, things are going poorly in the country, and they feel also nobody
2: returns my phone calls or wants to have anything to do with
3: me. Well, that's not happening to him. He's getting. He's incredibly. He's, sought he's very sought after on the campaign trail. He's all you know He can write and appear on any show he wants to. The fundraising committees that are raising money for Republican candidates are sending out lots and lots of emails under his name, which matters because what they're trying to do is get people who've given already to open up their emails, and they're more likely to open an email from Mitt Romney than any other Republican luminary at the moment, or not any other, but certainly he's a major contender. So he isn't going through that depressing part of it. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. He's got all these people who feel bullish about him again. And and that is um, that is encouraging. But I think in the end, I mean, if he is a long term business thinker and recognizes the trends and not the sort of whiff of the moment, he would have to decide that he could do it again. But it would be just as brutal as before.
1: And there's no guarantee of success. Emily, John sniffed at this a minute ago. Is this a weak GOP presidential field or is this just a moment where people are going through the kind of anxiety if you're a Republican, about, well, we don't have anyone who has the stature of Clinton? Or is it for sure true that they're weak?
2: Well, they don't have a shoe-in, but that could end up being a strength for them, because they could end up having a feisty set of primaries in which Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Chris Christie and maybe Jeb Bush battle it out, and the best candidate emerges from that field and turns into a stronger candidate. So it seems to me like they may feel like Clinton is way ahead at the moment, but they could very easily catch up and overtake her. And to me, Romney is like yesterday's lunch times three, and I can't really imagine it playing out in his favor. I would think that protecting his own reputation, eventually he would be right. more worried about being a right. third-time loser than feeling like it's really possible that he's going to He's win. also
1: old, right? He would be He's the, old.
2: He's 67 yeah, he's now, oldest, right? he's
1: as old as Hillary, so, so that, that advantage would be lost. And, and also, John, I mean, I'm sure this is the point you're about to make. This is going to be a phenomenally strong Republican presidential field. These guys are so smart.
3: I I agree. This is one thing that just like floors me is that there's this feeling that because there's not a front runner, that it's a weak field. In other words, there's not one like anointed candidate. When there's one anointed candidate, you could argue, in fact, I think I do, that that means it's a weak field. I mean, a weak field means you have multiple strong candidates. That may not mean it's going to produce the best possible candidate. That doesn't mean each one is fantastic. But, I mean, you've got like – like five or six governors who are thinking about running. Um, We're all smart. Who are all, smart, We're and who, all you know, smart. John Kasich's about to win Ohio by 20 points. Ohio, right. crucial, formidable. yeah, a crucial state. And then you've got other people. I mean, you've got Rob Portman, who is, you know, maybe he's not going to like change the world in with his charisma. But I mean, he is a durable, reasonable Senator. And if you look at the past in past races, I mean, look, going back, even back to 1980, you never had such a, a field with so many possibilities in it. You had maybe one strong candidate, but then you had a bunch of other kind of also rants. There's never been a group of right. thinker, uh, of those who are on the, on the sidelines thinking about getting in, who meet a bunch of the serious tests. Also, just one other thing is that, you know, when Ronald Reagan ran uh, in both in seventy six and eighty there were plenty of people who treated him basically the way people are treating Rick Perry now, which is like big dummy like an actor as president never like totally laughed and joked about him as a you mean we
2: can't write off rick perry he's gonna come roaring back
3: well i know i'm just saying that at the time there were all these smart people who said oh that's pathetic like reagan and the same with george w bush like oh drunk like totally did it on his dad's name weak governor in texas bill clinton Governor of a small puny state, like last in the country on this, that and the other measure, like that guy's never going to be president. And if he is, he'll be like. So a lot of times these candidates don't fill the office until they fill the office. Oh, and by the way, Barack Obama, one term senator whose middle name is Hussein, who's never run as much as a lemonade stand in his life running against Hillary Clinton, like this formidable Democratic powerhouse. Lots of candidates who John have gotten Edwards. the nomination, gone on to be president, and sometimes even been successful presidents have looked like total losers at the beginning. Right. So there's this very weird thing going on. And like even people who are practitioners of this kind of don't allow for that.
1: I think this is going to be an anus maravillis for the Republicans because the, the quality of these people who – with whom I disagree on virtually everything. But the quality of their minds, their strategic intelligence, their – Energy, their youth, their vitality, their ambition is—it's like nothing you've ever seen. There, there are—I mean, look—it's Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Paul Ryan, Bobby Jindal, Rick Perry, Scott Walker, Chris Christie, Jeb Bush, Mike uh, Pence, Mike Pence, uh, Rick Santorum. For God's sake, that's an—that's a whole football team. Yeah, (laughs) go Panthers! Unbelievable. There's not a there's not a dud in that bunch. Any one of those guys could turn out to be, and they are all our all our guys could turn out to be. An amazing presidential candidate. So the, the, I don't see how Romney, how Romney enters that field with you, any credibility.
3: You don't even need to go all the way to the depot with David on that, but you can just say, any one of those could be as good a candidate as Ford. Romney could be. And, right? No, I know you. The, the list goes on and on. I and mean, now the bench. It, it's, uh, and the Democrats have like two, two and a half. Who? Who? Who's the well, second? They have Martin won. O'Malley. Martin O'Malley. Martin O'Malley. Uh. That's your shoe. Oh, no, I don't don't uh, uh, Martin O'Malley for for no other reason than you need a battle. I mean, it'll be really fascinating to see what he does. But um, you know, the guy's mayor of Baltimore, governor of Maryland. Like, he, this isn't like Michelle Bachman. So, like, somebody who's never run anything. He's got a narrative, uh, but I'm I'm not saying he's you know, going right. he's running against a pretty massive machine. But I'm just saying like he's not a total.
1: All right. Last question on this topic, doorstep. Emily. There's something about the three-time presidential candidate that appears comical in a way the two-time presidential candidate doesn't.
2: Yeah, it's true. Dewey, Adlai Stevenson, Harold
1: Although Harold Reagan, Reagan, you could
3: argue, was a three-time.
1: And Nixon, 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 no. Nixon, Nixon? I mean, Nixon, Nixon you, 56, you— No, just, no. I guess, two. When was Reagan? What was Reagan?
3: I think he—I think—I can't remember, but I think he flirted in 72 with it. I think—I I mean, it doesn't—almost doesn't count, but I
1: think there's a way you can claim Reagan's three. Let me—
3: Search my recollection. The,
1: you know, winning, I, I, I wonder if there's anyone who's won on a real third candidacy. It does I seem comical. from
2: our reading, the reading that I did last night, that there hasn't been anyone who's won on the third. Listeners should chime in and write to us if we're forgetting someone. I do think there is a way in which it's such a massive mountain of an enterprise to get behind you. The idea that you have enough hubris to say... I've already blown it twice, but I'm the best hope for a third time. That just seems sort of crazy. And I have to say, the ways in which I found Mitt Romney likable in the documentary Mitt, which is helping to fuel this little Mitt bubble, makes me think that he is not self-delusional enough to run again. Like You have to take away all the things that you found charming about him in that movie and about his family to imagine that he's that big a narcissist.
3: By the way, Reagan did test the presidential waters in 1968 as a part of a stop Nixon movement, which is kind of funny. Okay. So that's the euro. It's not 72, but 68. Also, we need to keep firmly in mind, and I, I, we're going to come up with a list when this flirtation period is over, that a lot of these guys who are pretending to run – and Romney might have a little piece of this, too. Like, there is no downside to having people talk about you as a as a right. possible candidate. I mean, it gets you on boards. It gets you speaking fees. Your speaking fees change by about $50,000. Not that Romney needs it, but the others. Well, if you're considered a candidate or if you're just a has-been, you get to write op-eds. You get to be invited on TV shows. You get invited to Fancy Weekends in Aspen. Like... You want to be on the list of people who are considered, and you especially want to be on the list of people who can be considered as the, like, smart, reasonable, middle of the road, oh, he's got all these ideas, wow. You want to be that guy.
1: That's a good piece. You should write just what it is. What do you get for running? All right. For pretending to run, excuse me. Let's move on to our next topic. Greg Orman, who is an independent with lefty leanings, is running – maybe even, maybe ahead, maybe a little bit behind, Republican Pat Roberts in the Kansas Senate race. Orman is one of those ridiculously wealthy finance guys who decided like, he really should be an elected official. And he may well succeed. His strength as a candidate persuaded the Kansas Democratic Party to push their own nominated candidate out the window so that Orman would be alone on the ballot against Roberts. Roberts is a completely, as far as I can tell, dreary senator. I cannot think of... John, no doubt, has... Things in his pockets that Robert has done, Roberts has done, but really well, it just he tends seems to, to be like,
2: claim credit for bills that he then voted against. that oh. seems to be one attribute of his
1: <laughs> so he has he has, that is his distinguishing characteristic, but he's he's pretty consistently conservative. so Orman may be depending on how the Senate cards fall if he w- wins this race, he could be a fiftieth vote for the Democrats. he could be a fiftieth vote, fifty first vote for the Republicans. Emily, does it matter that that it's not really clear what he believes or that he believes anything?
2: Yes, it matters, but it seems like at the moment it's kind of helping him because if he defines himself as being too close to the Democrats, in fact, perhaps at all affiliated with the Democrats, then he becomes much more boring and also maybe too liberal for Kansas, which is Pretty conservative, so I think it 's smart of him not to say who he 'll caucus with or even what he thinks about many things. on the other hand it 's kind of embarrassing to imagine we 're going to have someone elected to the Senate whose views about some very basic pressing matters are a big question mark
3: well so he 's running on a platform of like bringing people together and working out compromise like first of all, that was essentially a version of what the president ran on, and if the President of the United States can 't do it. How is like a junior, a freshman senator from now? He'll have a certain amount of power because of who he decides to caucus with and how he plays it. If he gets elected, depending on what the numbers are, but of course not if he's the like. So, say he gets elected and Republicans pick up seven seats, who cares about Greg Horman, right? I mean, he can caucus with the Republicans if he wants, but they don't owe their victory to him. And so he'll get some committee assignments, and we'll never hear from him again. But the idea that like he's going to like change things by the power of his own you know, strengths and is just cockamamie. But you could imagine if we were writing the like pilot for the TV series, right? That the guy who tries to stay everywhere at once and just rails against the system, which by the way, staying everywhere at once and not taking a position is like a thoroughly political thing to do and not, Although you can turn around and try and make it into like a sign of your independence, there is this feeling, A, in the land and B, among the moneyed classes who are infuriated by the stupidity of the way our government works or doesn't work as the case may be and particularly the way the Senate is filled with grandstanders and people don't get anything done where you could see them like just dumping Mountains of money, it's a little too late in this race to do it, but behind such an effort, something that just calls itself independent just to kind of break up the stupidity. In other words, it's so hard to break up the stupidity, why not? And I'm sort of fantasizing now about the presidential race. If you've got Billions of dollars. Why not drop a hundred million on a candidacy that you're pretty sure is going to lose, but that might just kind of throw a cat amongst the pigeons and shake up the race and get people freaking out and create a sense of serendipity in a process that is so thoroughly like. Sclerotic and stuck in grooves. That, like, why not spend your money that way? So that's a really
2: compelling campaign slogan. I'm like, now I really want to get out the door and go campaign. But you just your campaign is against
3: the existing. Stupidity, the system that's rigged on both sides and rigged not just by powerful interests who have the senators and congressmen in their pockets, but also rigged in the sense of basically it's pent up by these conventions of timidity and kind of hyper-partisanship. so people but hate. But then that.
2: you're Ross Perot, except you're a senator, which means that no, no, no. I'm talking off- about
3: getting. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I've blown past the reality of the moment. Okay. <laughs> I'm in my sitcom here. No, I'm talking about <laughs> as a presidential candidate. I mean, well, I think what the he's Bloomberg touching Bloomberg on.
1: Fantasy too.
3: Yeah, <laughs> although Bloomberg's a, not a great vessel for it. But you would need to be. I mean, he's a, his checkbook is, Ross, is a good vessel. Well, you, have, if you have David. the Bloomberg model
1: and you have the Ross Perot model. Bloomberg, right. you have the kind of hyper-rationalist robotic genius, and in Perot, you have the the lunatic uh, genius, and you have to pick one of those.
3: Well, I guess what I'm saying is neither of those two, but an Orman at the national, at the presidential level, in other words, somebody with a great deal of their own money who is kind of a a slightly newer generation than than Bloomberg. That is just fantastical. Well, I'm not saying they would win. I'm saying that they would shake up a system that's basically stuck. I don't know. Hasn't this already happened before?
0: No, 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 no. I don't mean...
3: Sorry, you're not... Ross
2: Perot
0: totally. No, Ross Perot Perot no, 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 really, no, no,
1: no. Ross Perot was really. Ross Perot was, was an successful. incredibly disruptive yeah, force yeah. in that and, and, race. And I'm only talking about yeah, his term. But he didn't right. shake
2: up the whole system. No, but, Bill, oh, but he was a I gone. actually
1: don't think you're right about that, Emily. Bill Clinton's presidency is in many ways a response to Perotism. And he's a, he's a much more conservative and more fiscally kind of responsible president than he probably would have been otherwise.
3: I think that's. And, that's and, interesting. I think you can sustain that argument. And I, again, I'm making an argument for a disruptive and i'm i'm dropping that cliche because it's it's in that lane that Disrupt. i'm speaking right it's something that would Shake up the presidential election process. Not somebody who I, I'm. I'm not seeing this person as actually getting into office. I'm seeing them as a person who makes the next year and a half of presidential stupidity on the campaign trail right. a little less
1: stupid. But okay. But the actual fact is that we're talking about a Kansas Senate race, and this guy. The idea that you could walk into the Senate and accomplish any of this right. stuff is ludicrous. It's right. just silly to think that you you are uh, you know the speeches you're making on the floor of the Senate are going to Mr. Smith goes to Washington style change. How politics work. It's, on the
2: it's, other hand, Orman could get to the so Senate naive. and pick up on some particular issue, which will suddenly become his passion. I mean, he did start an alternative energy lighting company. Maybe he'll solve climate change, or maybe
1: get he'll bring some carbon illumination tax. To exactly. Well said. All right, let's uh, let's leave Orman. I, I, it's, do you think he's going to win, John?
3: I I think that Kansas reverts to form. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, Those they completely conflicting things. wrecked
2: by Sam Brownback, their governor. I know exactly. No, I, I, mean, I know. There really Brownback is the may moment. very
3: well lose, and the Democrats all who turn out for Davis may go for Orman. So I guess what I'm feeling, I'm because I'm also I, my other thing I was going to say is maybe Orman wins, but it doesn't matter because Republicans take the take, seats. take the Senate. Right.
2: You can join Angus King over in the corner.
3: Angus King, who is so independent, he won't endorse him. I thought he did. No. <laughs> I don't, I, so. thought... I don't think so. I don't
1: think so. All right, well, we'll we'll find out. Okay, let us go to Cocktail Chatter. When you are getting ready for our live show in San Francisco, Saturday night, Emily, having a, having a stiff drink to gird yourself for the show, what are you going to be chattering?
2: I read Lena Dunham's new book Not That Kind of Girl last weekend and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I found it charming and funny and not the voice of the generation, as of her generation, as Dunham has made fun of on her show, Girls, but a voice I was really interested in hearing from and thought taught me something about what it is like to have just graduated from college or be a very much younger than me woman in the American world right now in a way that I really appreciated. So I recommend it.
1: All right. I can't wait to read it. Hannah has a copy. I'm going to steal it.
2: It's good. You'll like it.
1: I, I know. I, I love, God, I love her. I think she's, she's just so fantastic. I wonder if people used to feel this way about Woody Allen. Like, if you talk to our people in our parents' generations, they felt the same warmth and admiration for her, for Woody Allen, that I feel for Lena Dunham, or whether they, it was always tinged with Woody I, Allen. See, I always. find
2: the Woody Allen comparison not to be entirely apt, because I think his neuroses have always been creepier.
1: But did people always feel that way? I want I wonder. But clearly, retrospectively, they're
2: super. I mean, creepy. if you go all the way back to Bananas and Sleeper, maybe not. But once you, I mean, and I'm a big Annie Hall and Manhattan fan, but I just feel like Lena Dunham is much more sort of youthful and exuberant.
3: You're not saying disparaging things about Sleeper, are you?
2: No, no. I was saying that that was the most charming face of Woody no, Allen. No. A movie, by the way, that one cannot get on Netflix. That's a mystery to me. Mm. My children have not seen it.
3: All right, you can't get Sleeper on Netflix. I can't. Uh, John Dickerson, why don't you chatter? So my chatter is about something that has come up more and more in conversations I've had with uh, campaign managers of these various campaigns. And it's always existed for the last several cycles. But in this cycle, it seems to come up all the time, which is that a lot of what campaign managers do these days in campaigns is spend their time answering emails with really bad ideas by – incredibly wealthy donors to the campaign. So what happens is, you know, I've written a big check to the campaign, or I've gotten all my wealthy friends to write a big check to the campaign. And I've got a lot of ideas about the way things should go down. And those ideas are informed mostly by two things. One, like whatever link I've just seen flash across my eye and whatever my time on the internet is, which – so I think that the entire world is based on whatever little thing I've seen or what my spouse is saying. And the one campaign manager in one race basically – thought a whole new ad campaign by one of these outside groups. It's in the Colorado race. It was was, uh, run by Crossroads. It was a group of women standing around the kitchen talking about Mark Udall and how he only talks about women's issues, and he should, should recognize that women care about other things too. A person involved in that race on the Republican side, right, on the side that wants to beat Mark Udall was like, yeah, that ad campaign looks like a response basically to a donor who said, you know, my wife was saying the other day. So more and more I hear these campaign managers talk about having to basically like spend their time calming down the guys with the money. Some other national republicans were saying, "You know, we're getting all these phone calls from our donors saying, stop talking about the social issues. They're like, we're not talking about the social issues. It's the democrats who are. The reason this is happening more, I think, two things I put my finger on are one, there's just a lot more money in politics. You have a lot more people raising money involved in outside super PACs who are just – involved in the money raising thing and part of when you're raising money you dangle the notion that these people can have a say in the campaign and then like when it comes down to it they won't have a say in the campaign the other thing is the proliferation of media which means that any blog post about any crazy theory can hit one of the inboxes of one of these wealthy donors and excite them and, and uh, get them on the phone calling you and saying, you know, why don't we run a like duck hunters for for none campaign or, you know, why don't we have her in. So anyway, to all of you out there who have run who or who are running political campaigns, I, I feel you. I feel for your. Your pain having to answer all those phone calls and spend like hours. I think most hour. of them
1: are just like, and we really need to talk about charter schools.
3: Yeah. Uh, well, there's some of that. There's education but, reform. No, a lot of them are like armchair political types who are so who are like, you know, well, why don't we just tell them that that Obamacare is bad or, you know, premiums are going up or what? Like they just have some like they have a lot of silver bullet theories. If you just run one ad saying that Barack Obama is a socialist. Boom. Done. It's over. Drop the mic. Go home.
1: I want to chatter about just my favorite idea I've heard in a long time. It's something called League of Kitchens. A woman named Lisa Gross in New York has started a business, I guess you would call it, in New York, in which she recruits immigrant women, or not necessarily women, actually, immigrants who are interested in food and cooking or good cooks themselves and have good command of English. And has them sort of tra- trains them a little bit and has them teach cooking classes and and uh cooking experiences in their own home kitchens and so you can go to the home of an Afghani woman and she'll cook afghani food she'll teach you how to you know how to make these great afghani dishes and talk to you about her life and her her own experience as an immigrant she has i think she now has about half a dozen or or ten of these programs set up. It seems like such a great idea for for connecting with a food culture you're interested in, for con- making a human connection with somebody, and having a food experience that isn't kind of mediated through the grotesque food culture that we live in right now. I love this idea. It should be done elsewhere besides New York. Ms. Bazelon, it's so good to see you again. Uh, Mike Volo, the producer, he took a look at your minivan. And, and we also had our intern, Max Tony take a look at it, get under the hood. And, you know, I know that it looks like it's just a flat tire, but I'm sorry to say there's a lot more than that going on here. Can you just take a look at the show page over here? You see Slate.com slash GavFest. You can see that ball joint there. It's totally rusted out. You can't see it look just behind there. Behind that, see the email address there, GavFest at Slate.com. The hydraulics right through there, completely shot. And, you know, that would all be okay. That would be okay, Ms. Bazelon. But the timing belt. See where it says at Slate GabFest? That needs to be replaced within maybe 5,000 miles or so. It's just going to go. It's just going to go. And Max also noticed that the manifold uh, heat controlling valves right there look at how black and greasy they are. That's because what the Haldex clutch.
2: Hul- is that John's car? Is there something wrong with John's car?
1: Oh, I don't think. Mr. Dickerson's car, is, uh, he didn't bring it into the shop today. <laughs> the Haldex clutch, though, over there at facebook.com slash GabFest, also, it's just gone. It's gone. And I showed it to Andy Bowers, who's our executive producer, and he, he noticed that your evaporative filter, um, control canister filter, it's expired.
2: What's that?
1: Yeah. So <laughs> here are your choices, Ms. Bazelon. We can fix the flat, and that's fine. You can take your chances. And I just can't guarantee the car is going to get through the next, uh, the next uh, few days. Or we can do the work that, that you need. So, How
2: much is it going to cost?
1: I thought you might ask that it's about 500 for the filter it's like 720 for the hydraulics 1340 for the ball joint the manifold valves run 225 each there are two of those <laughs> the tire the clutch which we're gonna have to order special is about 165 so it's about 3875 for parts and another 1200 for labor but so um, but because you've been such a good customer we can do it in even five thousand <laughs>
3: Hi. To you, the last uh, single listener who's listening to this podcast, <laughs> we just like to thank you for hanging on.
1: <laughs> Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you next week's special Superfest Fest. <laughs> <laughs> <show. laughs>
0: it's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.